Good morning, everyone. I seriously need to take some of you and plant you in the 9 a.m. service. I mean, the energy, the engagement. Guys, thank you so much. It's, it's a difference maker. It is a difference maker. You know, as we were in first service and I was just worshiping, I was looking at all of these faithful ministers who come up here week in and week out, Thursday nights, sometimes Saturday nights, early on Sunday morning. I, I was here at 7.30. Jonathan was already here. And these guys, man, and these, these ladies, this is their ministry. This is their service and sacrifice to the Lord and to one, to one another. Those of you running visuals, um, our security team, those people who are coming here uh, working with our kids, loving our kids, creating a safe place to minister to our kids and Man, for all of our ministry crew, I'm just overflowing with gratitude and love and appreciation for all of you, those of you who lead table groups. So thank you so much for your ministry. We call it ministry crew on purpose because it's not just people who volunteer. This is your ministry. This is what you, you bring to the Lord and to the people of God. So thank you for that. All right, well, we have a, a powerful word uh, in store for this morning. But it's, it's not quite like last week. So for those of you who were here li- last week, last week was one of those perfect words to just preach. Just preach that word. This word this morning is going to get a little up in your business today. So I need you to give me permission to meddle a little bit and to get all like get up in your business, right? It's like Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. I, I'm, I'm going to be all up in your neighborhood today. So um, I would have you. I had first service pray for me, but I'm going to actually have you pray for each other today because we need grace today to hear the word of the Lord. Father, we're so grateful. We're so grateful that you are present, that you are here, that you are moving and ministering among us. And Holy Spirit of the living God, we ask that you would speak to us that you would open our hearts and that you would open our eyes and that you would open our ears to hear, to perceive, to have eyes to see. And we make that choice right now, oh God. We don't just leave this all up to you. You don't force yourself upon us. We make decisions today. God, we choose an open heart. We choose to participate with you, to have revelation, to see truths that we have not seen before. To have a willingness and an openness, O oh God, to hear the word and to respond. And we pray for grace in these things. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. 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 Well, before we jump into the word, look around and let us just speak the grace of the Lord to one another. Grace and peace to you. Good to see you, Palkas, this morning. Looks like you have a friend with you. Grace and peace. Is that your mom? Beautiful. Hello. Good to have you with us. Israel and Terrell are in the house. It is so good to have you back home. Now, are you moved back or are you just visiting? In two months, you moved back. Well, grace and peace to you. The Lord bless you. Frable family, so good to have you. Grace and peace to you. Family of God, it's good to be together. All right, let's go to Matthew chapter 6. We are in a series for those of you who are new with us today or Uh, If you've not been with us in the past few weeks, we've been on a series called Praying with Jesus. Praying with Jesus. Pastor Jonathan had a very good insight a few weeks ago that we join Jesus in his heavenly high priestly prayer. So that when we pray, not just the words of the Lord's prayer, but when we 
enter into the spirit of the Lord's Prayer. We are joining Jesus in his place of intercession for the world. That's a high calling, right? The, The scripture says that we are a royal priesthood, that we are royal, we are sons and daughters of the king, and we are also priests, so we enter into priestly work. Every time you and I engage in the work of intercession, we are engaging in the work of kings and priests. We are engaging in a royal work where we participate in the will and the work of God in the earth. So last week, we talked about give us this day our daily bread, that as a result of our own decisions of transgressing and violating the will and the wisdom of God, we chose the path of independence. Today is all about relationships. Today is all about learning how to come back into alignment with God's perfect intention and original intention for our relationship with him and our relationship one with another. So in Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, we'll just put our eyes here on the lines of the prayer. Jesus is teaching his disciples how to pray. And this is what he said, pray this way, our Father who art in heaven. We're not going to say this, we'll do this at the end. Our Father who art in heaven. Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And as we are saying the lines of this right now, hopefully there is some recall from the past few weeks. Things that the Holy Spirit has been highlighting to this community. Highlighting in this prayer. Has it dawned on anybody that we really could probably stay within the lines of the Lord's Prayer for years? Has that dawned on anyone? Like, that just hit me yesterday. I was thinking we could really probably spend our entire lives unpacking the full depths and nuances of each of these lines. Our Father, well, let's stay there for a year. Who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. The multi-layered names of God, we could stay there for a few years. Right? Thy kingdom come, exploring what the kingdom is and how the kingdom comes to the earth and the righteousness and peace of joy and how we engage with the culture and all, and all the parables of the kingdom. We could stay there for a few years. But here we are today on this line of the prayer. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us. The NIV says our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. All right, push pause. Today we're going to be talking about learning how to receive in great measure, the goodness and the kindness of the Lord and forgiveness, and also being vessels and conduits where the goodness and kindness of God is expressed and released to the world around us through our forgiveness of the world and our forgiveness of our core relationships. As we look at these lines, here's something that's very clear. Number one, we are people who sin. Forgive us. Forgive us. The entire human race, forgive humanity, of which we individually are included. God, we have sinned against you. Romans 3, verse 10, for those of you guys who love and know and have walked down the Romans road, know that Romans 3, 10 says, there is none that is righteous. There is none that is without sin. No one is righteous, not even one. Recalling some of the Psalms where the psalmist was recognizing with great intensity, God, I have sinned against you. You guys remember in Psalm 51, we're not going to look at that psalm, but Psalm 51 was written out of the context of David's sin against Bathsheba, David's sin against her husband Uriah. But within Psalm 51, what we hear David saying is it's against you and you only have I sinned. David recognizing and realizing that 
the first place that our sin and our violation, our trespass, our debts, our transgressions, the first place that is located is first and foremost against God. We are a people who sin. We are a people who have sinned. And the other certainty we find is that we are a people who have other people sin against us. We are a people who are affected by the sins of others. Now, interestingly, for those of you who read multiple versions or translations of the scriptures, particularly within Matthew's version of the Lord's Prayer and Luke's version of the Lord's Prayer, you'll find different words. And how many of you in the room are a forgive us our sins people? Let me just see, when you pray that prayer on your own, anybody forgive us our sins? Just a handful, okay. What about forgive us our trespasses? Who are all the trespass people in the room? All right. Forgive us our debts. Any, any debts versus debtors here? Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. How about transgressions? Have, forgive us our transgressions as we forgive those who trans... Am I missing any? Am I missing any, right? Like, think about these words, you guys. First, first, the word sin, which means very simply to miss the mark. Like, there is some righteous standard against God that he has established that is good and holy and right and just. And when we sin against God, we miss that mark. We miss it. All of our good works, it is not by works that you have been saved, but it is by grace through faith. And why is that? Because there is no work that is good enough that could get us back into right standing with God. We miss that mark. We miss that holy and appropriate standard, whether by things that we've done that have violated that mark or by things that we have not done, that we could not do, that we did not do, that we chose to omit from our lives. Think about the word trespass, what comes to mind, right? Most of us probably think of a sign that says no trespassing, which means don't violate this boundary. This is my space. That's your space. There's a fence between us. There's a boundary line between us. And when you cross that line, you are trespassing. Now, every single one of us have our own lines. We have our own boundaries, whether they are known or whether they are communicated we have boundaries. We have physical space boundaries. My sister-in-law does not like it when I come and I hug her, but I do it anyways. And I give her great context to pray this prayer. Oh God, forgive me my trespasses as I forgive my brother-in-law who constantly trespasses. Get your hands off my hair for goodness sake. My hair does not belong to you. I don't know, my sister-in-law's, I just like, just, just, it's, it's, I don't know, it's. Physical space boundaries, we have emotional boundaries, we have verbal boundaries. Like, listen, if you ever get around those people who just say little things like, oh, you know, sarcasm is just my spiritual gift. No, you're rude, right? And you're violating everyone's boundaries, ignorantly, maybe willingly, maybe knowingly, right? Sarcasm is dark humor, right? Sarcasm is a poor excuse for speaking the truth in love. Sarcasm is not language that builds up. Sarcasm is language that tears down. Sarcasm is cowardly. It's the coward's approach to confronting real issues. Well, I went there fast, didn't I? Wow. Let's pull out here for a second, right? Forgive me our trespasses. You just violated my boundaries right now. Think about the word debt, right? So when someone sins against you, they don't hit the mark. They disappoint you. 
when someone transgresses or breaks a boundary, then our response is, now you owe me something. You're in debt to me. You owe me. You owe me emotional restitution, mental restitution, physical restitution. You owe me. You took something from me. You took dignity from me. You took honor from me. You took beauty from me. You took safety and security from me. And so now... As a result of your choices, I'm holding you in debt. You're a prisoner to the choices you made against me. And I am not giving you freedom until fill in the blank, whatever that is. So this is what we're going to be talking about today. You know, you and I were created, we were created for relationship. Because we were created from relationship. Now, how do we know this? We always have to go back to our original intention. We have to go back to our original design, our divine design. We have to go back to the very beginning. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, Genesis 1, 26, we find that God is having a conversation with the Godhead. And look at the language where he says, let us, capital U-S, look at this, let us make mankind in our image. What's happening there? He's having a conversation with The Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are conferring together. And out of the overflow of the relationship and love, the mutual submission, mutual honor, mutual love that is constantly, eternally, abundantly flowing between Father, Son, and Spirit, out of the overflow, they said, let us create humanity. Let us create a world to place humanity in and let us establish relationship with them. And if you study ancient uh, cultural Uh, situations that were going on at that time, the thing that separated Christianity from all other ancient religions is the fact that God did not create us in order to enslave us. He didn't create humanity to have an empire of workers. He created humanity for relationship, for intimate relationship, to know and to be known, to experience life and joy to embrace delight. He created humanity to delight in humanity and for humanity to experience the delight of God. Now think about when God first creates the creative act of God creating humanity, putting his hands deep into the soil, forming every part of our body, and then mouth to mouth, eyeball to eyeball, breathing life, the Ruach of God, the holy breath of God, the holy life of God. You and I are living human beings that have our being because the breath of God is inside of us. Because the living breath of his spirit, he released into us. We find that in Genesis chapter 2. And we find that not only did he create us for relationship with himself, there is an inner ache, an inner longing. Whether you realize it or not, there is an inner ache for relationship with God. Like we spend our, our days looking for peace with God. Like, have you guys ever seen Forrest Gump? You know, that scene where, um, is it Lieutenant Dan? <laughs> where Lieutenant Dan is on the hull of that ship, right? And there's that massive storm and he's just, he's cursing God, but he's cursing God because of this inner ache to be right with God. Right? He's, his legs have been blown off through a tragedy and a war, and, and he's so angry at God, and he's angry because he really desires to be at peace with God. And the next day after the storm is over, you see Forrest out there looking at Lieutenant Dan, and he's just, he's just flapping around, and somehow, some way, he came to a place of peace with God. There is an inner ache. God has set eternity in our hearts. Our hearts long to be at rest and at peace with God because you were created 
to know God and to know him intimately. But he's also created us to have relationship one with another, to know one another, to enjoy one another, to interact in an intimate, personal, genuine relationship one with another. And we find this in Genesis chapter 2. Let's look, if we would, here, beginning in verse 23. The, the context here is that God gives man an assignment. And then, in the midst of his assignment, God recognizes that man also needs an equal, holy, shared companion. And so, in verse 23, the man said, This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. God has put the man into a deep sleep. He pulls a rib right here from the side. And he, and he creates, male and female, God creates man and woman to reflect and to reveal the glory of God, the goodness of God into the earth, in and through man and woman. And man has a revelation. He, he starts speaking prophetically here. I mean, look at these words. There's no way that Adam should be able to recognize what's going on here. He takes one look at his wife, the wife that God has created and the wife that God has provided, and he says, this is bone of my bone. This is flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman. He has revelation of the full weight of what that means, for she was taken out of man. This is why a man leaves his father and mother. Did you ever, ever stop to think that Adam didn't have a father and mother? Right? By the spirit of wisdom and prophetic revelation, mankind is speaking into the divine design of man and woman in marriage, and he begins to prophesy, man will leave his family, and he will create family by joining himself in covenant love to a perfectly suited woman, and vice versa. And they will be united together, and look at this, and they'll become one flesh. This is a mystery. How, how does this happen? It is by the empowerment of God's spirit and by the grace of God and the enduring love that is birthed by who Jesus is in our lives. And Adam and his wife were naked, and they felt no shame in their union, in their oneness, in their intimacy, in their complete vulnerability, there was nothing that was hidden and there was no shame as a result. Now, in our story, we know, we know, as we look at our own marriages, as we look at our own relationships with friends, as we think about our interactions with our roommates or our coworkers or our children or our parents, we know that that's not our story. We know that shame and guilt and fear and anger and animosity they riddle our story. And the reason why there's such angst inside of us is because of the original intention of our story. We wouldn't be so bothered by this if the original intention of us was to live in hostility. We'd say, this is normal. But it's not normal. It is uncharacteristically abnormal. Right? And it, and it grates against us internally because there is an inner longing for union that was birthed out of the original intention for which God created all of us. We were created for union with God, unbroken, unhindered union with God, unbroken, unhindered union with another. And that's not the story of the world. From our interpersonal relationships to our family dynamics to churches and denominational splits and racial riots and political tension and, and people groups ethnically, we see that the, the effects of sin damages relationships. That's the common denominator. Right? Sin suffocates relationships. Sin suffocates relationships. And the longer you allow sin in your relationship in your life, it will choke the life out of your relationship. 
right? Slowly, the lifeblood of the oxygen of God is being removed from your relation. You're, you're, you're choking out. You're choking out. But God gives us an antidote. God gives us an answer to this. Now think about this. Think about what was family conflict like in your life growing up? I hope I don't trigger anybody too bad. Let's just try to stay on a very general level. But for some of you, family conflict growing up was riddled with violence and hostility. Maybe that was verbally. Maybe that was physically. Maybe family conflict was settled in your family by whoever was the strongest, whoever could dominate the most wins. So the way that we deal with conflict is we power up. We power up in our volume. We power up in our intensity. We power up physically. We manhandle one another. We beat the other person down in in order to win the conflict to get back to some semblance of, of order and harmony. Maybe in your family, the way that you dealt with conflict is that you would just retreat to opposite corners. Maybe it was, I'm going to go to my side of the house and you go to your side of the house, or I'm going to leave the house for a few hours or a few days, and I'm going to come back when I get it all together. But we're never going to talk about this. We're never going to really address what happened there. We're just going to get ourselves back to a place of stasis, to a place where we can handle each other or tolerate each other again. But we're never really going to have the hard conversations. Maybe that's what it looked like in your family. Maybe in your family, family conflict looked like we just, we just avoid it all and we just ignore it all and we act like there's no conflict at all. Several years ago, we had a guy that we were in relationship with. He and his wife had been married for decades. They were well into their early 60s and he says... And he said this with a level of pride. He goes, my wife, he says, my wife and I, we have never had one argument ever. Exactly. That's not good, Ruth. And if I could explain to you the dynamics of that marriage relationship, it's because he never let her disagree with him. So you're holding the fact that you've never had an argument in your marriage as a badge of honor. And really, it's an indictment. It's an indictment because you never allowed someone to think differently than you. Because if they offered another opinion or another perspective on the issue, you would squash them. Right? That's not healthy. That's not a healthy relationship. That's not how we deal with conflict. We don't just avoid things. We don't just ignore things. We don't pretend that things aren't there. Maybe for some of you, you grew up in a family where we just shamed and manipulated everybody in order to control the situation. So we'll use sarcasm. We'll bring, we'll bring up your mistakes. We'll use those against you. And we'll do that in such a way that we're constantly reminding you of what you did or what you didn't do in order to shame you into a place that you never confront my power in, 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 the, in the home. All right? These are all unhealthy ways to deal with conflict. And they come from our story. They come from our story. So in Genesis chapter 3, we find that first and foremost, man sins against God. Remember, our first and primary relationship that God creates for us to have is union with Him. Unbroken, unhindered union with God. And so first and foremost, we find that mankind's relationship with God is broken. It's, it's disrupted. It's affected. Right? So where man and woman experience no shame in the presence of God, can you imagine? Can you imagine having no shame in the presence of God? No guilt, no suspicion, no doubt, no fear. Can you imagine being at such a level of security in the love of the Father and the goodness of God that you walked in and all of those narratives of your past never entered up into your mind or your emotions? That's what that's what they experienced. Unbroken, unhindered, unfiltered unrestricted, unconstrained relationship with God. It's beautiful. It's what you were created for. 
It's what we're going to experience in the fullness of the new heavens and the new earth. That is our future because it's our original intent. And then to experience that one with another. Imagine being in a marriage where there was never, ever, truly never an argument because there was such true mutual submission and true mutual respect. That's our design. And then what we find here is the cascading effect that mankind violates God's heart and will. And then they're in distance with God. Here's, here's one of the, you know, it's sad, but it's kind of funny. Um, God begins to enter into a conversation. Genesis chapter 3, verse 11 and verse 12. God goes to the man. He says, why are you hiding from me? What are you doing? What's going on right here? Now, I just want to, I want to create a little parentheses that I want to get back to later. But notice that God doesn't just write mankind off, walk away into his corner, pretend that what they did doesn't happen, and then judge them and categorize them and then operate in some form of pseudo-relationship with mankind. Notice that. What does he do? He enters into an honest conversation. Look at it. He goes to the man and the woman. He schedules a conversation and he asks an honest question. Difficult, painful, piercing, direct, but he asks them an honest question. And whenever God asks you a question, it's not because he doesn't know the answer. God asks us questions because we don't know the answer. And the very best thing that you can do, you see this scripturally, is that whenever God asks you a question, you need to turn it right back on him and ask him the same question he asked you. Are you, are you tracking with me? Right? Only you know, Lord. Adam, where are you? What have you done? Like, remember in, in Genesis chapter 4, God shows up to Cain, who has just murdered his brother, and what does God ask him? Where is your brother? And instead of Cain getting honest with God, using that as an opportunity for healthy and painful evaluation, he gets snarky and goes, am I my brother's keeper? The very best thing you can do when God begins to ask you questions is say, God, only you know, and ask him the same question. Adam, where are you? God, where am I? Where am I? I'm serious. Where am I? Where am I? And listen, if God is asking you where you're at, it means that you don't know where you're at. And he knows that you are not where you're supposed to be. God, where am I spiritually? Where am I physically? Where am I emotionally? Where am I sexually? Where am I relationally? Where am I fine? I think I'm doing fine, but maybe I'm not doing fine if you're asking me where I'm at. Allow the interrogation of the Lord to operate in your life. God, I don't know. Where, where am I? You tell, Help me. Help me. So we see that there's brokenness and division in the relationship with God. Adam, where are you? Then going back to verse 11 and verse 12, what have you done? Who told you this? Look at what Adam does. Now remember, remember. What did Adam just say in Genesis chapter 2? You are bone of my bone. You're flesh of my flesh. You are one with me. We are experiencing unbroken, unhindered, unrestrained relationship. Man's going to leave his family and unite himself, and there'll be one flesh. Look at what Adam says now. The woman you gave me. Which I think is kind of genius. You ever notice when a kid gets in trouble, it activates a level of genius that is un. Believable. Not only does God blame the woman, he blames God. Adam blames the woman and he blames God. Talk about hitting like two birds with one stone. It's the woman, but the woman you gave me. 
I was doing fine. You're the one who said, man, it's not good for man to be alone. I was happy with all these. Just give me my dog and I'm fine, Lord. You had to go meddling, put me to sleep, violated me, pulled my rib out. Should have just left things as they were, Lord, right? I mean, look at this. So we find that in our human story, in our human conflict, that our first mom and our first dad, the way they resolved conflict is they just blamed each other. They made excuses, and then they blamed God. And then we find that in their first family, our first brother, Cain, the way he dealt with comparison and envy and jealousy, and how did he deal with that? He powered up, and he went so far as to murder his brother, which we do in our own way when we slander and when we criticize and when we, we murder one another when we do that because we're walking in the footsteps of the way that our first family dealt with conflict. So if sin suffocates relationship, I'd like to propose to you today that we need some divine CPR. We need divine CPR. CPR, confession, pardon, reconciliation. The life of God. I love this crowd. Oh, my gosh. You guys are making me so happy this morning. The life of God. So God breathes his life into us when he first creates us. And then sin suffocates our relationships. And what we need is, oh God, forgive us our sin as we forgive those who sin against us. Watch this, watch this. You breathe in the forgiveness of God in confession. Right? You receive. Confession postures us to receive the forgiveness of God. The mercy, the pardon, the grace of God. And then we breathe out. And in the human body, if you breathe in and you just hold it in, you die. So if you're just rolling around going, I'm going to receive, I'm going to receive. In fact, I think there's a story about that somewhere around Matthew 18 where there's a guy who's been pardoned a massive debt. And he's like, yes, I love this. Forgive me, forgive me, forgive me. I'm going to just, I'm going to breathe in your forgiveness. I'm going to breathe in your grace. I'm going to breathe it in. And then a man comes and for a day's wages, he says, I'm so sorry. Will you please forgive me? And he goes, take that guy to prison. You know what he did? He didn't breathe out. He held his breath, right? And that's what we do when we fail or refuse or choose to forgive one another. Now let's get down into the weeds. So let's talk about confession. Confession says I was wrong. Confession says that in some way that I willingly violated you, I sinned against you, I trespassed a boundary, I broke security, I transgressed, and in some way I owe you. That's like confession is the willing and honest acknowledgement that I was wrong. I have offended you. And this requires, I want you to take note of this, painful honesty. Painful honesty. I think when we get down into the nuts and bolts of relationships, particularly when we're talking about violation one with another, if it's not painful, I question whether or not it's honest. Because real truth, the scripture says that the wounds of a friend can be trusted. Listen to this, the wounds Wounds mean it hurts. When you have a spouse tell you something that hurts, you can trust that they're telling you the truth. Earlier in this week, Christy and I were having a conversation and she said something to me. She said, I feel like you took something that was sacred and something that was personal 
and something that was deep and beautiful, and you used those very words against me, and you betrayed me. And that killed me. That was so painful. But that, my friends, is what you call honest and painful confession. And my whole point in preaching this morning is we will never get to real relationships without painful honesty. We serve one another when in the spirit of grace and love, we can tell the truth to each other. N.T. Wright, in his book on the Lord's Prayer, he talks about tolerance. And he says, instead of us engaging in real forgiveness, what we do is we, we slip into just tolerating each other. I want you to just think about this here for a second. We are prone to cheapening the work of confession and forgiveness because we take shortcuts. We take shortcuts. And what does a shortcut look like? It, it looks like when we gloss over our mistakes or the mistakes of somebody else. Oh, it's okay. No problem. There's a scene in Hitch, you know, where Eva Mendez says, you know, I'm sorry for hurting you. And Will Smith goes, you didn't. Right? What is that? That's called a pseudo relationship. That's called not being honest with what someone has done to you out of self-preservation. And listen, listen, this is hard work, friends. This is painful work. Tolerance is a cheap man-made substitute for real forgiveness. Tolerance is cheap. Tolerance invites us into pseudo-relationships. It sweeps things under the rug. It avoids the hard, uncomfortable, painful conversations because they're uncomfortable because probably because we have been in that space in our own families growing up because probably because of the level of fear and insecurity the level of doubt that has entered into our soul as a result of being in that friends listen i i acknowledge this is hard work this is scary stuff but i want to announce to you the gospel you are a new creation people you are a new creation people. You are a people who have been forgiven. Real confession and real forgiveness is serious work and it's hard work. You cannot authentically ask for forgiveness without painful honesty. All right, so let's, let's talk here. How do, we, how do we get there? In confession, you have to be painfully honest with what you did. Which means that you have to slow down enough to do a number of things. Number one you have to have a serious conversation alone with yourself. And you have to assign honest language. Don't use euphemisms. Oh, I was just playing. You know, I was playing. No, you were, you, were, you were rude. Right? I belittled you. I demeaned you. I violated you. I neglected you. I disappointed you. I betrayed you. I hurt you. I took something precious that you gave to me and I used it to protect myself and in protecting myself, I hurt you. Listen, you have to be painfully honest with your language and you've got to name your violation. God can never deal with you until you get honest with what you've done. There can be no healing for things that we don't bring painfully into the light. 
this is what we're dealing with. You've got to confess it. You've got to ask hard questions about what is the impact of what I've done. So there's the action and then there's the, there's the consequences of that. If I violate someone's trust, then there's going to be consequences to that. In other words, you're not going to trust me. And what, what we foolishly expect and we assume is we expect the grace to keep violating someone's trust without the consequences of that. Right? And then we want to throw things like, well, why don't you just trust me? And then we want to use that as a manipulative tactic. Now, I don't trust you because you have repeatedly done things that are untrustworthy. And you have violated my trust repeatedly to a place where when you say that you're going to come home on time, when you say that you're, 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 you're strictly just working, when you say there's nothing between you, I don't trust you. Now, I want to posture myself into a place where I can, but you have to recognize there are real consequences to the decisions that you made. Right? This is honest confession. This is dealing with the real reality of mistakes that we have made, either by sin, trespass, transgression, or debt. Number three, we have to honestly evaluate what's the cause here. This is the hard work, friends. Why do I keep repeating this? What pattern have I adopted in my behavior that has made me complicit to repeatedly hurting the people that are around me. And as long as you assign that to something else beyond yourself, you are escaping ownership that keeps you from change. I was my parents. Oh, I came from a broken family. I just have a lot of stress right now. It's a difficult time at work. I'm an eight on the Enneagram. Listen, whatever, whatever, whatever you want to use, as long as it's something outside of you, you will never change. That's not honest confession. You have to say, because I am rude, because I am insensitive, because I am afraid, I am scared, I am unwilling, I am unteachable, I have resentment, I have bitterness, I am mean, I am abusive, I am angry. You have to get into that with yourself. That's the starting point of you changing, because then from there, you can say, God, show me how. Where did the cycle begin? I have an attitude. I believe something about you. I believe something about me. I believe something about marriage. I believe something about parenting that is destructive at its core. And unless you confess that, you'll never change it. You have to bring God into, you have to bring that into the light of God's involvement. I'm believing something that is a lie and it is destroying my life. Jonathan looked down here and I was, I was, I was, I was playing with this cadence here. It's deception, dysfunction, destruction. That's how it works. When we refuse to confess our sin, it leads to deception. And the mind will justify what your heart has chosen. If you refuse to change, you can find doctrines out there, friends. I'm telling you, there's tons of damaging doctrines out there on how, you know, men can treat women. And listen, it's, it's deception. It's deception that allows you to function in dysfunction. It justifies your dysfunction in the name of God. But ultimately, it will lead to destruction. Okay, I've got to hurry here because there's something I really want to get into. Because the next part of the CPR is we can't just confess. We've got to pardon. We have to forgive. And it takes the same 
degree of painful honesty to forgive those who have violated us, who have offended us, who have hurt us. Forgiveness is the painful, honest acknowledgement of offense, and it is the conscious decision to release a person from their violation. Now, a couple of thoughts here. Forgiveness is not synonymous with trust. To forgive somebody does not mean that you will automatically trust them. You know, in our premarital counseling 20 years ago, our counselor, Brent and Janice Sharp, said that building trust is like filling up a bathtub with water, right? It takes time. It happens slowly over, over numerous acts and over a long extended period of time of being faithful and being responsible, being kind and being humble and dying to yourself. And as that happens, you fill up the relational tub with, with grace, But when you violate someone's trust, it's like pulling the plug. And sometimes all of that water of trust goes down the drain. Sometimes it's all of it. Sometimes it's immediate. Sometimes it's massive. You ever notice that? Like the water drains so much faster than it does to fill up. So no one is saying today that the command of the Lord is not trust those who have violated you. The command of the Lord is forgive them. It's forgive them. Because you cannot trust who you've not forgiven. Because forgiveness is the first step in true reconciliation. And let me be very clear this morning. Reconciliation, friends, is the goal. Reconciliation is the goal. Forgiveness is the means toward the end of relational reconciliation. Let's go back to original intention. Let's go back to divine design. The original intention for God is that you and he operate and an unhindered, unbroken relationship that flourishes. The goal is for not you to walk away and go, I've been forgiven, this is great. The goal is for you to turn back to God and say, I have been forgiven, and run to him to reestablish intimacy in the relationship. He wants the relationship to flourish. Think about your relationship one with another. The goal is not just so that you can get your heart clean. The goal... Is not just so that you can be in a better place. The goal is for your marriage, your friendship, your coworker, your neighbor, for that relationship to flourish. Now listen, your relationships will never flourish if you are not brutally honest in confession and in forgiveness. And in forgiveness. You will never enter into reconciliation. Guys, this matters. It matters to me. It matters, more importantly, it matters to God, but... I think I mentioned this uh, months ago. Reconciliation, I'm discovering, is like one of the deep core values in my life. Like when I recognize in my family or I recognize in this church, when I recognize that people are unwilling to reconcile, guys, it bothers me. It disturbs me. It grieves me on a deep level. Do you know why? Because I hate pseudo-relationships. And when we refuse to get painfully honest in our confession and our forgiveness, what we do is we create a false sense of relationship. Oh, we're good. We're good. We're friends. We're cordial. We're, cons- we're courteous. That's not real relationship. You've not gotten into the hard conversations. You've not went round and round and round the mountain until you come to a place where you're willing to fill the bathtub back up again. Right? Most of us... Our drain plug has not entered back into the tub. Are you hearing what I'm saying? So as long as you're not being honest, the plug is outside of the drain. 
So anything that someone does, it's just water down the drain. It's not building up a tank of relationship. And consequently, you're fooling yourself. I would venture to say you're living in darkness. If someone comes to you and says, hey, we have a problem, or I want to talk about something, or this may be hurt, or I feel like you've hurt me, or I feel like you've let me down, or I feel like I've let you down, and you're refusing that conversation, friend, you are living in darkness. You are becoming a partner with deception. You are fostering self-deception. Are you hearing me this morning? Go with me to Colossians chapter 3. I want to announce something to you. And then I want to talk about why reconciliation matters so much. Colossians chapter 3, what was it, verse 12? Therefore, look, as God's chosen people, we're talking about identity now. Friends, this is who you are. This is your identity. You are the chosen and beloved people of God. The way N.T. Wright likes to say it is that we are a community of new creation people that have been forgiven, and so we forgive. It is a signpost that the kingdom of God has come. Let me, let, me just, let me just drill down really, really deep on this. The way the world knows that the kingdom of God has come is not by our messages, it's not by our church buildings, it's not by our books, it's not by our TV broadcasts. It's when they look at us and they see the light of forgiveness in our eyes and the world goes, you look different. Because the fact that we are a forgiven people is a signpost that the kingdom of God is here. More so when they look at us and they they see reconciliation and harmony and unity in our relationship with another. And they say, forgiveness flows one to another. And it is the greatest witness that everything that Jesus said and did is true. When the world looks at our community and they see a people that have been forgiven and who forgive, it is the signpost that the kingdom of God is here. And when you refuse to confess your sins one to another with painful honesty and painful inventory, and when you refuse to listen to one another or hold that meeting with that sister who's asking you or that brother who's asking you, listen, you are essentially the kingdom of God is not in operation. Like, I hope you get this. You cannot pray thy kingdom come if you're refusing an an opportunity for reconciliation. The kingdom of God is not operating in your friendship if you are refusing an opportunity for reconciliation. Hold that up there if you would, Lord. Let me read some of these posts to you. This is by David Fitch. I've preached an entire message out of this book before. The book's called Faithful Presence. The chapter's called The Discipline of Reconciliation. Listen to this. Reconciliation is so central It is so critical to the good news of what God has done in Christ. Listen, that to see no reconciliation in our churches suggests that there is no gospel in them. You cannot call yourself gospel people if you're unwilling to reconcile. It's an oxymoron. To be a gospel people is to be a reconciling community. Reconciliation marks our presence in the world. Isn't that powerful? How do we know that you are who you say that you are? Because look, look at the relationships that are around me. I've done the painful work. I've done the hard work. 
I've done it because of the grace of God. I've done it because of the power of the Spirit. And look at the fruit of our relationships. Listen to this. This discipline, the discipline of reconciliation shapes a space of reconciliation where God calls into being in this new world what he is creating in Christ. Let me say it another way. When you choose to reconcile with another human being, a brother or sister that you're at odds with, at that very crossroads, at that very juncture, the kingdom of God comes. You are creating a space for the kingdom of God to enter in and to bring new creation. Where there is broken relationship, hostile relationship, unforgiveness, bitterness, resentment, odds, judgment, envy, comparison, anger, all of these things in that space where you say, let's come to a table. Let's have a conversation. Let's have brutal confession and brutal pardon. In that place, new creation begins. God's at work. God is, at pre- God is present. God has promised to be present. You know the verse that we all use out of context? What is it? Where two or more gathered? What is it? What is it? Come on, talk to me. Yeah? Where two or more gathered in his name? What, what, what is it? He's with us, right? Do you know the context of that? The context of that is reconciliation. It is purely the context of that verse. We like to open up prayer meetings with that. God, where's two of us here? So you're, no, no. It means that when you choose to do the hard work of painful confession and painful forgiveness in the spirit of reconciliation, God promised you, God, I'll be there. So when you say, I'm afraid, I don't want to do it. What has, what's going to happen to the relationship? I'm afraid. You don't have to fear. He promised to be there. He's waiting at the table of reconciliation. Let me just say this to all of you really quickly. If you're a leader in any capacity, let's start with the marriage. If you have kids, you're a leader in that family. And if you refuse reconciliation with your marriage, your children will suffer the consequences. You will create a culture. You will create an environment. You will create dysfunction, bred out of deception that leads to destruction in your family legacy because of your unwillingness to bring the kingdom of God into the space of reconciliation. And you give the enemy an open door into your family. If you're a church leader and someone asks you for reconciliation and you refuse, you are opening a door in your church to the work of the enemy. It's not tolerable. It's not acceptable. Are you guys hearing me today? It's not acceptable. We have to be better. We have to come up higher. And we think that we can tackle racial reconciliation in the world, and we can't have a conversation with someone we've been friends with for decades? We're fooling ourselves. You think that you can go into the middle of the hostility of the political spirit that is a literal principality in this nation for centuries, and you can't have an honest conversation with your daughter or your wife? You're fooling yourself. We're powerless. You're powerless. You have no power in the place of prayer. Stop running around trying to tear down principalities and you don't want to have a conversation with someone who is your brother or your sister. You're powerless. And you're going to get yourself hurt. The way you build authority in the kingdom is this. Come on, let's stand to our feet this morning. Wasn't that strong in the first service, man. <laughs> Guys, this table, wow. This is the place 
where we prophetically receive the forgiveness of God and we embrace our new identity as a forgiven people. Jesus announced over you that you are a new creation community marked by the forgiveness of God. And as a result, the signpost of your presence in the world is that you can now forgive. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. It's not a condition. It's not if we forgive others, we'll receive your forgiveness. It is we have received the privilege and now we have the responsibility to forgive. You have the family responsibility to forgive those who have hurt you and to posture your heart towards reconciliation. Would you do something this morning? Would you just stretch forth your hands at this table? I just, I have faith today that when we come, there's gonna be something that's released. I am praying today that there would be a holy revelation of how deeply we have been forgiven by the goodness and the grace of God. I have faith today to pray that when we come to the table, that chains of shame and guilt and oppression will literally be broken and fall off of our lives. I have faith to believe that there will be an empowered grace by his spirit to forgive mothers and fathers and husbands and wives and release them from the prison of debt. We announce today your debts are forgiven. At this table, Father, we choose to set prisoners free from the captivity of our unforgiveness. And God, I'm praying today that God would be reconciled to man that man would be reconciled to God, that woman would be reconciled to God, that man would be reconciled to man, that woman would be reconciled to man, that woman would be reconciled to woman, and that there will be something that just begins to flow in the lifeblood of this house. Hard conversations will happen. Mutual submission and love and respect will happen. Honest and painful confession and pardon will happen as the spirit of unity flows in this house at the table of reconciliation. Friends, come and let us receive and feast on the goodness of God today. by the Spirit. This is not for everybody because prophetic words are not for everybody. Too many variables and dynamics in a room. But I think this is for somebody. It's time. It's time. You've put it off long enough. It's time. No more excuses. It's scary. It's painful. It's time for you to go and say, I'm sorry. It's time for you to say, I forgive you. It's time for you to say, can we work at this? Can we be reckoned? It's time. I just, that, that is a word for somebody. It's time. 
All right, friends. I want you to take the bread in your hand. And I want you to look around this room and lock eyes with someone. It could be someone ne- ne- next to you. It could be someone across the room. And I want you to lock eyes with somebody in this room. Everybody lock eyes. My boy's just grilling me right now. And I want you to just look him in the eye and I want you to say, you are forgiven. Say the body of Christ broken for you. Friends, let us receive in the abundance of God today. Hallelujah. Ha. He was broken so that you could be forgiven. Now look at someone else or the same person. Look at them. Say your sins have been forgiven. The blood of Christ shed for you. Let us receive. Hallelujah to the Lord God Almighty. Friends, with open hands, let us pray the prayer of the Lord as we are sent out to the spaces God has called us to. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Friends, may the Lord send you into broken places. May the Lord send you into fractured families. May the Lord send you into hostility to be the faithful presence of the reconciling king and his kingdom in the world. The world needs reconcilers. And so in the authority of Jesus' name, I send you to go be an ambassador of reconciliation in the name of Jesus. Amen.